Welcome friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 15th of May 2014 here in Japan, and today we're joined on the line by a previous guest on the Corbett Report, although it's been a few years now since we talked. We last talked on the subject of South Sudan. I'm talking about Keith Harmon Snow, an independent investigator and journalist and photographer who's worked in Latin America and Asia and Europe and Africa, where he has uh, done such things as worked as a human rights investigator with Genocide Watch and Survivors Right International. He has has attended the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda. He's testified at congressional hearings in Washington, D.C. His websites include allthingspast.com and consciousbeingalliance.com, and his writings can be found all over the web, from dissident voice to global research and many, many other outlets besides. So, Keith Harmon Snow, it's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, James. Glad to be on. All right. Hope I can do the subject justice. Yes, well, that's really the important part of this, because we are going to talk about a very delicate and very in-depth subject that a lot of people have a lot of very fundamental misconceptions about. So I think, unfortunately, the task generally falls to us to try to um, absolve people of some of those misconceptions, and hopefully we can at least scratch the surface of this conversation in this conversation. Although I will direct people at this point to a recent conversation you had on the Porkins Policy Review podcast, a very interesting and in-depth conversation with Pierce Redmond. So I'll put the, that, uh, the link for that in the show notes for this interview at CorbettReport.com so people can go and listen to that conversation and hopefully flesh out some of the things that we don't get to today. But we are going to talk today about the Rwandan genocide of 1994, and of course we are in the midst here in May 2014, in the midst of the 20th anniversary of the so-called 100 Days, which has been talked about and touched upon a little bit in the mainstream media, and generally, unfortunately, most people's understanding either comes from mainstream reporting on this subject or from, more likely, sources like uh, Hollywood uh, uh, picks like uh, Hotel Rwanda and things of that sort. And so people, I think, generally have some sort of understanding of this as as something that was perpetrated by extremist Hutus against Tutsis and moderate Hutus, and somewhere between half a million and a million uh, Rwandans were killed during that 100-day period, and it was all put to an end by Paul Gagami and the RPF who came in and saved the day, or something along those lines seems to be the narrative that most people took out of this. And just about every part of that narrative is wrong in some respect, and of course in some respects it's 180 degrees from the truth. So in order to start deconstructing this, perhaps we can start at sort of the roots of the conflict and people's understanding of Hutus and Tutsis and all of this as just another African tribal conflict. Let's start talking about the actual power structure that existed there in Rwanda and exists today and the historical roots of this 100 days. Well, the power structure that exists today is the Rwanda was brought to, brought to power. Paul Kagame, the current president, was brought to power by the Rwandan Patriotic Front. The military guerrilla campaign began on October 1st, 1990, culminated in the double presidential assassinations of the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi on April 6, 1994, the so-called beginning of the 100, the beginning of the so-called 100 days. And the Rwandan Patriotic Front seized power in a coup d'etat backed by the United States, Britain, and Israel. The four-year civil war culminated in, as I said, this conclusion on July 15th, at the end of the 100 days, and the Rwandan Patriotic Front has had power since then. And this is a criminal regime, as criminal as criminal can be. You think of some of the worst dictators we've ever heard of in the past. For example, Augusto Pinochet from Chile 
or uh, give me somebody else, you know, Hitler. I mean, more people have been killed because of Paul Kagame than the guy we know as Adolf Hitler. And that is not an understatement by any sense of the imagination. And it also sounds kind of like, you know, if Keith Harmon Snow would say that, this guy must be crazy. You know, who, who, he's comparing this guy, Paul Kagame, to Hitler. Well, that's not what I've heard. What I've heard is that Rwanda is the you know, the, the Switzerland of Africa today, the business climate is fantastic and they're growing coffee. You can buy fair trade coffee at Starbucks and, and uh, it's safe and they stop the genocide. And there's, there's reconciliation between Hutus and Tutsis being brought about by the Rwandan government. All of that is absolute nonsense. The government of Rwanda today is a criminal regime that has been engaged in extortion, conspiracies to murder and assassinate people outside of Rwanda and inside of Rwanda, in Europe, in the United States, in South Africa with the most recent assassination, in Kenya, for example. The government of Rwanda today, if you can call them a government, has been involved in extortion, conspiracies, uh, mass murder in the Congo, genocide in Rwanda, genocide in Uganda before they came to power in Rwanda, genocide in Rwanda itself, genocide in the Congo, and they're also involved in the genocidal campaigns going on in Sudan. So, and they're, they've been involved in the criminal racketeering and extortion and absolute robbery in the Congo of the raw materials, in the Eastern Congo in particular. Most people or some people have heard about the fact that the coltan, columbium tantalite, is used in our cell phones, Sony Playstations, laptop computers, and that this comes from Eastern Congo, and that this is responsible for the conflict in Eastern Congo, and in Eastern Congo that, you know, it's the great capital of the world. These are other partial truths and partial misconceptions advanced by the propaganda system to cover up or, or create what is otherwise basically false, the falsification of consciousness, the falsification of Western consciousness. What really happened in Rwanda began with the Tutsi, Tutsis assuming power in, I don't even know, 1750 or 1850 or, but by 1890, the Tutsi kings in Rwanda were in control. These were cattle herders. The Tutsi elites were cattle herders and the Hutu masses and it's 80% Hutu, 20% Tutsi in Rwanda, then and now. And the Hutu masses were the serfs, the slaves, the, uh, the agriculturalists. They were then, of course, the colonial apparatus was mapped over Rwanda in 1890, uh, beginning in 1890, where Germany took control. But people have to understand that this is not a, a tribal. Hutu and Tutsi are not tribal constructs. For example, you could, be, you could become a Hutu by losing all your cattle which makes it clear that it's an economic thing. It's not, it's not, it's an economic and a social status thing. It's not anything having to do with tribe. You could also lose, you could also gain cattle and become a Tutsi, although that was very, very rare. To join, to go from the masses to the elites was very rare, but it did happen. More common was to lose all your cattle and go from the elites to the masses. So the Tutsi elites are the people we need to be concerned with. The Tutsi elites are the people that committed genocide in Rwanda in 1994. The Tutsi elites, if, if people are listening and they, they, this scrambles the brain in the Western mind who's been so deeply propagandized because you can't hear the Tutsi elites are responsible for genocide in Rwanda in 1994 when you've been given all this propaganda before that tells you that the Tutsis are the victims and the Hutus are the killers. The Tutsi elites are the killers. The Tutsi elites slaughtered Hutu people from October 1st, 1990 until 
the middle of 1994, and they continue to perpetuate, perpetrate genocide in Rwanda to this very moment, for example, through policies of forced sterilization of Hutu males in Rwanda today. They're also still hunting down Hutu people all over the, all over the world. And we could go into that, but it's, it's peripheral. The point is the Tutsi elites in 1890 were in control of the masses. It was not a tribal thing. Germany came along, mapped the colonial apparatus over Rwanda and Burundi. Burundi. And in, after the end of World War I, Germany lost control of, because of the reshuffling of power after that, Germany lost control and, and Belgium took control of Rwanda and Burundi. And Belgium also had control of the Congo. King Leopold slaughtering, you know, the red rubber trade, all this that people can easily learn about. Ten million killed in, in the ten years of King Leopold's reign and that sort of thing. And Belgium seized control and then perpetuated the, the stereotyping of Hutu and Tutsi people and basically used the word again, mapped it onto a tribal construct which becomes part of the white men mentality of thinking about Africa as something that has to do with Tarzan and Jane, which was all created in 1938 by Edgar Rice Burroughs. But the groundwork was that for that was laid long, long before by a guy named, as early as a, you know, a guy named Henry Morton Stanley. And people, most white people know the story that goes like this. Henry Morton Stanley searched for this guy Livingstone. He found him in the continent somewhere and he came up to him and he said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. There's nothing about that story that has any truth to it either. Henry Morton Stanley was an agent for Belgian, the Belgian king. He went into the Congo and set up the red rubber trade. They you know, butchered entire villages to make sure that they met their quota. They cut children and people's hands off. You know, they raped women, they took women away from the men to lure the men out of the jungle and then turn them into slaves, etc. This is what Henry Morton Stanley did. And his books began the white tribal representation of Africa that persists and has been used by the, 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 the imperial apparatus to continue to falsify the consciousness of people about Africa so that we can exploit the place. And what are we talking about? Exploitation, diamonds and gold and rubber and copper and tin and manganese and oil and methane and, and uh, plantations for coffee, cocoa. I said rubber, palm oil. You know, it goes on, the list goes on and on. But the biggest profitable business in Africa today is the misery industry. The CARE, UNSF, UNHCR, World Vision, you know, Save the Children. That's the biggest business in Congo by far, over and above all of the most valuable mineral commodities and agricultural commodities, even water. So back to the subject of Hutus and Tutsis, just to conclude the, the, the point that the Belgian colonial apparatus put in place the, the system which further exacerbated the problems between Hutu and Tutsi people. But the Hutu people were the, the, the oppressed people until 1959 when they with the support of Belgian Catholic priests and the Catholic Church, who saw that Hutu people were not getting a fair and just education, educated enough Hutus in what I, what I believe was liberation theology, and the Hutu people set about, like black people all over the world, in seeking their liberation, but their immediate oppressors were the Tutsi people. Not the Tutsi people, I take that back, the Tutsi elites, because there were plenty of ordinary average Tutsi people who also were oppressed under the Tutsi elites. Not as badly. So by 1959, 1960, there was a social revolution. revolution. The Hutu people overthrew the, the Tutsi apparatus. 
Belgian saw the way the wind was blowing and changed its support from the Tutsi elite to the Hutu elite at this point. And then uh, all of these Tutsi elites who had been basically running the slave trade, the, the slavery in, in Rwanda, were forced out of Rwanda. They fled for their lives, quite clearly. They, you know, they, just like the Tibetan Buddhist monarchy fled from Tibet with the Dalai Lama. They took all the gold, they took all the money, they fled, and they left the serfs behind because they, it was not, a, not, in Rwanda, it was not safe for the Tutsi elites after the Hutus assumed the power structure. So the Tutsi elites then fled to Uganda, the United States, Belgium, some to Kenya, a few to Tanzania, etc., but mostly Uganda, United States, Belgium, UK, and then they started screaming bloody murder. They started screaming that they were the oppressed people. They were oppressed by the Belgians, and it was great. It was a great story. It looked perfect. The Belgians oppressed the Tutsi, the Tutsi elites. This is a story they took to the non-aligned movement. We had the United States and USSR and the non-aligned movement, the countries like Brazil and India and Malaysia. And they went to the non-aligned peoples, peoples of color who are fighting for their own liberation from the imperial apparatus and colonial structures all over the world. And they said, we're oppressed, we're oppressed. And they got all this funding and all this backing and were able to buy arms and go back and attack the Hutu power structure in Rwanda from 1960 until 1972. The Tutsi, were the, the Tutsi elites were the perpetrators of violence. But every time they went back and attacked Rwanda, Hutu people within Rwanda would retaliate and commit atrocities. And the Tutsi people in Rwanda were the victims, very clearly the victims of this. But the Tutsi elites would, would come in, hit and run, go back. And they called themselves cockroaches. They called themselves, the word is Inyenzi in Kinyarwanda, and it translates to cockroaches. And this was something that, that the Rwandan Patriotic Front was very proud of. They would strike under cover of night. They would bomb buses. They would bomb uh, nightclubs in Rwanda. Before, this is long before 1990, they would bomb uh, civil, civil, the civil apparatus and create terrorism in Rwanda to destabilize the country under the former, previous, the, the secession of Hutu presidents. So in 1973, this guy, Juvenal Habyarimana, who lasted from 73 till April 6, 1994, he was assassinated. I'm sorry, I meant he, he was assassinated April 6, 1994. He assumed power in a coup in 1973 backed by France. France boots, boots, boots the Belgians. France takes control, uses Habyarimana as their man, backs the Hutu power structure, and France is now the big money maker using Rwanda for their, for their own purposes. And of course, the United States is to Latin America as France was to Africa. The United States and Latin America, had, we had all these colonial and imperial missions and CIA operations, and France had the same thing in Africa, and we were way behind in Africa as far as that goes. Even Britain, Britain was second to France, but they were way behind, and then Belgium and Germany. But France had all of these countries. Francophone Africa was huge. It's Mali and Burkina Faso and Togo and Benin and Cameroon and Gabon and Central African Republic and Chad, all these countries. And they wanted and took Rwanda. And so they had their little satellite over here. They had the Belgians had Zaire or Congo. And France was able to use Rwanda as a base for power operations on the continent from 1973 until 1994. So France does play some role in what happened. What we always hear is that France was responsible for the genocide in Rwanda, or we're hearing this often. We hear that France has not been held to account for their participation in the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. 
So that's the summary of the, you know, the Hutu Tutsi relationship brings you up to 1990, where Hutus were a majority in power in Rwanda in 1990, when the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the Tutsi elites, backed by Washington, Israel, and Britain, invaded. And that was a, 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 the, one of the primary illegal acts of the century, because the October 1st, 1990 invasion of Rwanda set the stage for the double presidential assassination in 1994. All of the killings between 1990 and 1994, the killings of the Tutsi people in 1994, and then the multiple genocides that the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the Tutsi elites, committed in the Congo. And to, to conclude the point between the Tutsi and the Hutu, the tribal, the, the relationship that's more social or economic, the Hutu people in Rwanda were the majority from 1990 to 1994, for example, they were forced from the north to the capital, Kigali, to the tune of 1.2 million internally displaced people living in refugee camps by April 6, 1994. The Tutsis who stayed behind in 1960, 1973, etc., they were French-speaking Tutsis. The Tutsis that left became English-speaking Tutsis, mostly in Uganda. These were not even Rwandans anymore. They were, they were always billed as the victims, a stateless people, a people without a country, the Jews of Africa. This is part of the propaganda system, part of the propaganda uh, official narrative about genocide in Rwanda, that the Tutsis are the Jews of Africa. We have to have sympathy for them. They, they're stateless people. They deserve to be in control of Rwanda. But none of this makes any sense. You think about it. The Tutsis invaded Rwanda there was a double presidential assassination. We can talk about who was responsible for, for that. It was Kagame and the RPF. But in any case, there was a double presidential assassination. The Tutsis are the victims of genocide. Somewhere, and the number is actually 800,000 to 1.5 million Tutsis killed, victims of genocide. But they win the war, and they're in power today, when there were only 20% minority previously. So you look at the numbers, and some, some professors from the United States went to Rwanda, started looking at the numbers, and immediately concluded that it was impossible that all of those Tutsis were killed. So if there were, were 800,000 to 1.5 million bodies, who are they? If they're not Tutsis, they're Hutus. There's hundreds of thousands of Tutsi bodies, but there was more than hundreds of thousands of, of Hutu bodies. So who are the victims here? The Hutus or the Tutsis? The Hutus are the victims. The Tutsi elites who spoke English, the Ugandans, some Americans were the perpetrators, and the, the next tier, another tier of victims, because we have a hierarchy of victimhood, the Hutu masses, the Tutsi masses in Rwanda. The Tutsi French speakers were the victims of genocide in 1994, but it was, they were acts of genocide. There's no evidence at the International Criminal Tribunal that, were, that there was any organization of conspiracy to commit genocide, any planification, they call it planification of genocide by the Hutu government. Because on April 6, 1994, the president and his chief of staff were assassinated. The, the government was decapitated. And the prime minister, her name was Agatha, um, I can't remember her last name. She was immediately assassinated. And that was because the RPF wanted to get her out of the way, too. And so then the, there's no government. You can't say the government of Rwanda committed genocide from April to July of 1994 because there was no government. It had been completely decapitated. So there was no organization, there was no planning, but there were plenty of 
Tutsis around and there were plenty of Hutu people and these Hutu people had seen their history was a history of bloodshed and oppression for hundreds of years and they'd seen their people forced from the north, villages completely wiped off the face of the earth, uh, women raped, people massacred, people lured into meetings by the RPF before 1994, told that this was going to be a meeting to deal with democracy, to bring democracy to Rwanda and then they were just butchered. And where was the international press? The international press was supporting the RPF story because the RPF story was being put out by people in Washington, D.C. and people in Israel. And we could name some people, some Mossad, a Mossad agent, uh, David Kimchi in particular, and an, and an American intelligence operative named Roger Winter, who were responsible for organizing the psychological operations and the invasion of the country, which the RPF did. And of course, if people have failed to conclude that this makes some sense, but Paul Kagame was trained at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is the U.S. Army Command and Staff College or something like that. And they train people like Kagame in an American military in several, several key things. One, how to invade a country as a guerrilla force. And two, how to create psychological operations to win your war. So that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> it was. But it gives people a little bit more of the, the, the true story of what really happened in Rwanda. And we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. No, but the, the truth is always more fascinating than the, the, the propaganda because, uh, I mean, there's so much more to it. But let's, let's break down a couple of points there. For example, you paint a vivid picture of the, the, uh, the Tutsi elites uh, having been overthrown in the 1960 revolution and, and fleeing the country. And going to the non-aligned movement um, to, to to sell their story, and somewhere between that and 1994, obviously they'd won, the, curried the favor of Britain and Israel and and uh, the United States, as you say. How did that changeover take place? When and where and why did the British and the Israelis and the Is Americans jump on board with the RPF? Well, some of those questions I haven't answered, and 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 they're hard to get answers to. But we know that there was a conference organized in 1987, 1988 in Washington, D.C. by this guy, Roger Winter, and, and his cover organization is the U.S. Committee for Refugees. They don't, they, don't, they don't do anything with refugees. It's an intelligence operation. So Roger Winter organized this group of Tutsi elites, Tutsis in the diaspora, and uh, they, they discussed how they were going to gain power back in Rwanda. Now, why would the United States support a bunch of Tutsi, you know, elites who were well-educated and formally in control and believe themselves to be superior to everyone else in Rwanda. Of course, not only Rwanda, but the Tutsi elites believe that they're superior to everyone in Africa, if not even Americans, you know. That was a funny comment. I have to <laughs> they believe themselves superior even to Americans. You know, it sounded very, it sounded very racist. You know, some people, Rwandans that I've met are superior to most Americans in, in their capacity to think and their intellect. But the, what I'm talking about is this inherent belief that they are the chosen people. They are the Jews of Africa. And that's where this narrative was picked up by, with the support of the, the Zionist Israel, Israel, U.S. government thing. And the, uh, back to the question, why support these guys? They had formerly had power. They were bright. They knew Rwanda. Who else is going to take Rwanda if not somebody from Rwanda? They were educated in the United States, Britain, Belgium, etc. And most importantly, it was the perfect guerrilla force to overthrow, displace French control of Central Africa. And the, and the, the goal was to 
eliminate the French control of Rwanda, Burundi, and move into the Congo. And of course, this, if people know something about Central Africa, they immediately go, no, 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 the United States wouldn't be overthrowing the Congo. Zaire, this is Zaire, 1988, 1989, 1990. This is under Mobutu Seko, our long-term CIA man. Everybody knows Mobutu was supported by the CIA. He filled Swiss banks with billions of dollars and he died. That's the end of that story. It's much, much deeper than that. Why would the United States overthrow its own client government in Zaire? Mobutu was supported for years by mostly Republican administrations. Bill Clinton was in power in 1994, 95, 96, when the invasion of Congo, Zaire, took place. The Clinton administration invaded. The power structure reorganized Central Africa, displaced some of the corporate, corporate, some of the corporate forces, some of the corporations, some of the individuals, the elites who were in control in Central Africa, in Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda. They had done Uganda previously, and then they did the Congo Zaire in 1996. Going back to that point, the United States, Britain, and Israel supported dictatorship in Uganda for many years. We supported, brought to power Idi Amin, and then when he became too uh, power hungry and asked for too much military weaponry, United States, Israel, and Britain dumped him and turned him into the world's worst dictator overnight and then eventually removed him. And then along by 1980 comes this guy, Yoweri Museveni, who's in power in Uganda today. And we brought him to power in 1980 to 1985. And he was supported by thousands of these Tutsi elites who had fled Rwanda. And uh, we took Uganda. The United States, Britain, and Israel took control of Uganda, invaded Rwanda in 1990, culminated that war in 1994, and then invaded Zaire. So the United States toppled, took over a socialist government in Uganda from 1980 to 1985. That was the Milton Obote government, the second Obote seating, the second presidency of Milton Obote. He was a socialist. I mean, nothing could be worse except being an Arab or, you know, Islam, etc. The, uh, the Taliban, I mean, this, this guy was a socialist, communist. So we got rid of Milton Obote, we put in Museveni, the IMF and World Bank sent in all this money and started funding the, the invasion of Rwanda. So you have to look at the IMF, the World Bank and all that stuff. There's some articles that just came out recently in celebration of the so-called 20 year, in the 20 year anniversary of genocide in Rwanda that have made the point that the World Bank and the IMF supported genocide in Rwanda. This is true. But the rest of the story that these articles portray, that these articles portray is that, that all of the basic narrative, the official narrative, so they, they completely missed the point. The World Bank in 1988, 1989 did crank the screws down on the government of Juvenile Javi Ramana. It created all of the destabilizing forces that are created by IMF loans and structural adjustment, meaning higher uh, infant mortality more people unable to get basic education, basic health care, basic food supplies, social unrest. There was massive social unrest. Along comes the RPF, invades the country, and starts promising democracy. Even Hutus believed that the RPF was going to be better than what they were getting under this guy, Juvenal Habyarimana, who was really being attacked from all sides by the World Bank, the IMF, the corporate Western American propaganda system, the British propaganda system, et cetera, et cetera. Javier Mana wasn't that bad of a president. He was a dictator. It wasn't the greatest. It was a dictatorship. It was an 
It was an absolute dictatorship, a one-party dictatorship. But Tutsis were not persecuted the way that we're led to believe that they were persecuted under Javier Amana. They were not persecuted the way we're led to believe. So the IMF, the World Bank, came along, screwed the place royally. And by 1990, 91, people were flocking to the RPF, believing that they were the, the, the saviors that they were promising to be. They had no intentions of bringing democracy of any form to Rwanda. Instead, they set about killing everyone in their path. And that's how the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994 actually happened. Every time the RPF moved forward in, in, with their, with their, in their cam campaigns of successive military campaigns of invasion, for the invasion from 1990 to 1994, every time they moved forward, more Tutsis died. They knew this perfectly well. Every time they moved forward, more Tutsis died, more Hutus were displaced, there was more destabilization, and by April 9th, April 10th, April 11th of 1994, the Hutus who were able to call themselves something of the power structure in Rwanda that was left, called for a unilateral, uh, unilateral surrender. The Hutus in power, the Hutu military, the supposed extremists who were out there with machetes supposedly slaughtering people left and right, they called, they called for a unilateral, un unconditional ceasefire, unconditional surrender. And the RPF refused. So the idea that the RPF stopped the genocide is absolute madness and nonsense. So that was, to answer your question, the point was that the United States wanted to displace France. They did so. We did so. We control Rwanda today. France is out. And we're always making them look like they're responsible for genocide. When, in fact, we invaded the country. We committed massive crimes, atrocities. And when Bill Clinton stands up and says, we're sorry, we should have done something, we stood by, anybody who believes that story really needs to see a therapist. Mm. Well, uh, uh, probably a lot of people do need to see a therapist because as you we say, so much of this is about the falsification of consciousness, which is a very insidious process that takes place through, through decades of propagandization and, and the subtle manipulation of terms and concepts and ideas to the point where people literally can't understand the truth when they see it. So I think it's a very pervasive problem. And on that note, I mean... We, we talk about some of the, the lessons learned supposedly from Rwanda and the way the international community has processed this and its, um, its role in helping to create the International Criminal Court and the idea of the responsibility to protect, which is often brought up these days in light of we don't want another Rwanda. Um, those are the lessons that I think um, the, 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 the false consciousness wants us to take away from this. But what, what are the real lessons of this conflict then for people who see the, the truth behind what actually happened there? Sure. You mentioned some interesting things, the responsibility, responsibility to protect the International Criminal Court. These are structures, you know, this is part, of, you know this perfectly well. This is part of the power structure. There's a political economy, political economy of human rights. There's a political economy of genocide. There's a political economy of any of those doctrines that are supposedly for the betterment of humanity, humanitarian. It's not about humanitarian anything, the responsibility to protect is another one of these doctrines that have been created that has have been created by the power structure to advance the power structure and the control of people of oppressed peoples all over the world including the the lower classes in the United States, Britain and Israel, for example. So the responsibility to protect that's a bunch of absolute nonsense. The politics of genocide are such that you mentioned how you know decades of propaganda lay the groundwork for, for to create this madness in people where they assume that what they're hearing that the Hutus are the, the extremists slaughtering people with machetes and the Tutus, Tutsis are the victims. Or, wait a minute, are they Tutus or Hutus? Americans sometimes don't even know what they're called. 
but they've absorbed these stories over decades and it's gotten to the point where a story can be a new story can be introduced almost overnight in the mass media and it can be and the american mind will latch onto it in such a way to say that oh this this is an atrocity we have to stop and we could lay out some examples like for example the joseph coney story coney 2012 and then the most recent one is this uh, nigerian campaign boko haram which is a cia operation and so uh, that's the point I was making about the propaganda, it's gotten to the point where the hysteria can be, can be whipped up overnight. Your question was... What are the real lessons of this? Real lessons of what there? happened in Rwanda? Uh, well, never again is absolute nonsense. You know, first of all, one of the lessons for me is that I've gotten every single book I can find on genocide. All of these genocide expert expert texts on genocide, all of these academics who've written books on genocide, and I'm studying the relationships between where they're announcing that a genocide happened or where it didn't. For example, one of the hidden genocides is the genocide against the, the Hutu people in Burundi in the 1970s. The genocide against the Hutu people in Burundi in the 1970s. Another one is the genocide of certain Latin American tribes that we never hear about. But why don't we hear about those genocides? It's not that these people are any less important. Or I thought genocide was something we're supposed to stop under any terms. Never again and all that nonsense. No, it's because there's, there's, power, there's power to be grabbed using the term genocide, labeling something a genocide or not labeling it a genocide. So we did that in, in uh, Darfur. We labeled that a genocide committed by the government of Sudan, which is completely 180 degrees from the truth of the story. Government of Sudan was involved in an insurgency, fighting an insurgency. You can even, it's amazing that people read the propaganda, the words, and they, they don't process what they actually mean. They process it in the way the propaganda system expects them to, no matter how hysterical the terminology is. For example, this guy at Smith College, Dr. Eric Reeves, who talks about the counterinsurgent counter genocide committed by the government of Sudan. Counterinsurgency. Countering who, then? You have to ask. And they're countering. The government of Sudan was countering the invasion by the United States, Britain, and Israel in Sudan. So the, uh, the power structure uses the term genocide, and it goes all the way back to World War II. You, you can read and study about what happened in World War II. You know, the atrocities that we committed were no less atrocious than the atrocities committed by the Germans or the Japanese. But we won. So the point is, don't lose a war. You lose a war, you'll be saddled with, with uh, labels like genocide heirs, like in, in Rwanda. The Hutus lost the war. It was a war. The Hutus lost, and they are the victims. They are suddenly the perpetrators of genocide. Because it's the perfect story for the United States to be able to continue to advance our interests. And the American public, of course, would be you know, remiss to go around questioning whether there was genocide in Rwanda or who committed genocide because you just don't question whether there was genocide against the Tutsis or you must be a genocide denier like I am or a geno genocide negationist, which is what Kagame uses just as European countries use that terminology to advance the Holocaust industry. So we have a Holocaust industry and we have a Rwanda genocide industry, and these are industries in every sense of the term. Big financial profits to be made, advancing the thesis that there was a genocide of a certain kind in a certain place at a certain time by a certain people. The truth is far from that in most cases. 
Well, Keith, we, did I answer your question? I, I, I think so. Well, we've only begun to scratch the, the beginning of the top layer of the veneer of the surface of this story, obviously. So once again, I'm going to direct people to, to your websites and your, your articles on this in the past for more information. We'll include some of that in the show notes, as well as a link to your uh, conversation with Pierce Redmond. And I think we're going to have to have you back on in the future to continue talking about not only this subject, but related subjects in Congo and other places that, uh, that tie in with this story. But I think we'll leave it there for now. Once again, Keith Harmon Snow, uh, just a wealth of information. I do appreciate your time today. Thank you again for your for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me on.